my name is Kyle Navratil, and I'm the Discipleship Coordinator at Laterno Christian Center, which, as Mike also said, who knows what that means. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, I am the education guy. I get to do all the scheduling, the programming, the recruitment for our, our summer discipleship program, as well as for our one-year uh, school. And as Mike's kids know at camp a few weeks ago, uh, I also bounce between hosting talent shows, uh, lifeguarding your children as they toss around a watermelon that Mike covered in Vaseline in the water, but he tragically broke after only one throw. Um, and after a few minutes now, I'm, of course, going to be preaching. So ministry does really seem to be a catch-all for a variety of jobs, but I am incredibly grateful to be here with you all. If you do have any questions about Letourneau, um, I'd be glad to field any of those questions. I put some materials out back, but I really do want to dive in the message. And truly, it is surreal to be here, uh, to be at a church that Mike so dearly wanted a pastor at. And I've known Mike since before either of us were involved in full-time ministry, and I have laughed with this brother. I have so much, so much, and I have cried with this brother as well through some absolutely amazing seasons, and it is an honor to be here with you all. Uh, so the title of today's message is Grace Leads to Godliness. Grace Leads to Godliness. And the text is Second Peter 1, 1 through 15. If you have a Bible, I hope you do, please turn there now. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind." having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort, so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word and the revelation that it gives us. I pray right now that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear just what your word has to say. I pray that I would not speak out of my own wisdom, but only the spiritual wisdom that is given through the knowledge of Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would encourage our hearts today to be faithful, to love you, and to grow in these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is a long text, and I want to dive right in. So let's start with verse 1 here. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter's going to introduce himself as the author of this book, but he's also going to introduce a very important aspect of who he is. He's going to say servant or bond servant. The actual Greek word here, doulos, 
It fundamentally means slave. And it is the most commonly word, commonly used word for Christians in the New Testament. To be a servant or a bond servant of God. And from the beginning, this is how Peter's going to introduce himself. He's going to say that I am a servant. I'm someone who's completely owned by the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom I am a messenger and an apostle to you. And who is he writing to? To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's writing to those who are saved, to those that know God. He's addressing regenerate, believing, born-again Christians. And my message this morning as I read Peter's words will also be for those of you here who know God. For those of you who do not know God, I encourage you, listen. Listen to the glory and listen to the joy that Peter is going to be calling us Christians to. For those of us who have professed obedience, though, to Jesus, and who can with confidence say that we know God, I want you to listen this morning and find encouragement in your faith. And this will be the first reminder that Peter is writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. Now, this is the man who walked with Christ in the garden before his crucifixion, who's going to watch the transfiguration of Christ on the mountain, and he's going to see him shining brighter than the sun. This is going to be the man who saw Jesus calm a storm in an instant just by saying, stop. And he's going to say to those who have obtained an equal standing of faith. But this is not the kind of faith that comes from witnessing these miracles or seeing spectacular signs or, or having the experience of denying Christ but hearing the resurrected Jesus forgive him. No, this is a different kind of equal standing. Peter is writing to those who have obtained an equal standing in the faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, which indicates that his audience is not just the first century congregations that he's writing to. No, he's writing to all Christians, all of us, who've obtained a faith of equal standing by the righteousness of Christ, by faith in him and him alone. And you know what? That is us. Peter's reminder is as applicable to us today as it was for those to whom he was writing. And that's the foundation of the message. The foundation of grace that leads to godliness is this faith this most elementary doctrine of Peter's grand reminder. Grace leads to godliness for those who have obtained a faith by the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, as Savior and his Lord. Well, let's continue on in verse 2. He says this, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So Peter's going to command that grace be multiplied in the lives of those whom he is writing. And the sentence can also read, Grace and peace be multiplied to you by means of the knowledge of God and of Jesus. Now, it's not just in the knowledge, but it's by that knowledge. Now, look at verses 3 and 4. Peter's going to specify what, what the, the content of this knowledge is. We know that he's writing to those with equal faith, with the hope that grace and peace is multiplied. And this is what he says, starting in verse 3. This is the content of by the knowledge we are going to have grace and peace multiplied to us. He says this, starting in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There is so much here in that. And this divine power, it's the catalyst for godliness. The divine power is the how of godliness. It's how God gives us 
all things that pertain to life and godliness. And the Greek word for all things is panta. It's where we get our word pangea or panacea or pandemonium. And if you, if you go to the Greek, it actually begins with this word. It says panta. That's how it begins. Which, so the stress of this verse is that all things, all things pertaining to life and godliness has been granted to us by God's power. All things. That's what the emphasis of this is on. And there's two aspects that I want to focus on for verse 3. It's the fact that all things have been given to us and that it is the divine power which grants them. This Greek word for power, I'm sure some of you have heard this before. It's got an amazing cognate into English. It's the Greek word dynamis, where we get our word dynamite. And these are different verses in the the New Testament where this word is going to be used. Matthew 6.13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to unto us who are saved it is the power of God. And 1 Corinthians 4.20 For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Peter grounds all things that are given to us as Christians in the power of God. And he says that it is by this power of God that we have all of these things. And continuing in verse 3, he says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, this ought not need explaining. The glory of God. The excellence of God. The grace of God. The power of God. The knowledge of this. And it is the knowledge of this through which we have godliness. Peter hasn't even gotten to obedience yet. He's just telling us what we are to do in response to God's role in this. Grace and peace are multiplied to us in the knowledge of God. It is God's divine power which grants to us all things for the sole purpose of God's glory. Your godliness, and godliness in general, it's not about you. It's about God. Now verse 4, he says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. But promises of what? Salvation. Messiah, Jesus, Lordship, a new heart. I think one of the most amazing things is when I read in the, New, in the New Testament about these promises and I read about how all of these things that happened for thousands of years prior to the coming of Christ have been talked about, prayed over, lived through. And Ezekiel 36 is going to describe the promises that we as Christians get to live in today. He's going to describe it like this. It's a glorious passage. And this is Ezekiel 36, he says, I will sprinkle, this is God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Ezekiel, seven to eight hundred years before the life of Christ, prophesies concerning an age where God is going to take our hearts of stone and put in us a heart of flesh. He's going to say, I'm going to put my spirit inside of you. I'm going to cause you to be obedient. That's now. We get to live in that. And these, to these Christians, this is to whom Peter is writing, that they find the very fullness and the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. And we if we have an equal standing of faith by the righteousness of God, we can also 
find this encouragement. So let's keep going. We have now the divine power grants us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, through these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And these last two points that Peter's making, to partake in the divine nature and escaping the sinful desires of the, of the world are profound. Let me make this clear. When he says that we become partakers of the divine nature, he's not saying that we become God. Absolutely not. But that we become godly. It is, in essence, the way in which Satan tempted Eve in the garden to say, you can be like God. But it is fully Christian to say that you can look like Jesus. And there is a difference there. We become godly. We become imitators. We are not and cannot ever be God, yet we can look like him. We can look like Christ in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions, and we are becoming participants in the very essence of God, the very being of who God is. And we represent him as its image bearers, and increasingly so throughout our lives. This is what Peter is saying. As we go about our daily lives, people should see God in us. For Ezekiel himself says that God will cause us to walk in his ways, and that we now have his spirit. There is glory in this. Deep, profound glory in this. And the grace and peace that would be multiplied to us if we could merely understand the depth of the knowledge of these things. And you, Christian, you have access to all of this. All things have been granted to you by the power of God. And I will be praying that Peter's words ring as true for us today as they did 2,000 years ago. So Peter lays out in plain terms many aspects of our salvation. He's laying down a foundation. He says our inheritance, all things pertaining to life and godliness. He says how we grow by the knowledge of God who called us to his own glory and excellence. He says how do we know this? Through the promises that have been given to us and for what purpose? So that we may become partakers of the divine nature. Walking, talking, and looking like Christ. We are saved we are saved. Glory in this. He has given you a new nature. He has saved you from sinful corruption. He has fulfilled his promises, and by his divine power, he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But in Peter's own words, you cannot partake of the divine nature if it has not been granted to you. You cannot be godly if you do not know grace. That's why the title of the message is that grace, first and foremost, is what leads to godliness. But we know what, grace is, what God's grace is. It's his love for us through his son, Jesus Christ, living a perfect and sinless life and to die a death that we imperfect, rotten, spoiled, and evil creatures ultimately deserve. So that we, those evil creatures, as Peter says, could be made new, be reborn, become partakers of the divine nature. And if you do not know God, I implore you, I beg you, seek him. You will find him. And you will find the glory of the joy of grace and peace. And now for us as Christians, I want to see what this grace leads us to. Peter has now laid down the foundation of our faith. The grace and peace that leads to godliness. And starting in verse 5, he says this. For this very reason, make every effort. So we know the reason now. Salvation. But the following phrase make every effort. 
Do we know what this means? Do we really know what it means to give a full effort? I really want you to think about this. How many of you can honestly say that you have given a full effort to anything in your entire life for more than a minute? Maybe 10 minutes, an hour, a day, a month, a year, 10 years, 50 years? Do you have any idea what it takes to have consistent, focused effort, day in, day out, sun up to sundown, every moment? Because I can say this for certain, I don't. I have committed myself to things in my life that last for a year or two, but there's always these back doors, there's always these loopholes. There's always the option to quit, whether that's in college or even in an exercise routine. I mean, genuinely. That's how every single exercise and diet routine begins. We have this image in our mind of how good we're going to feel at the end, but it rarely ends up like that. We quit. We don't make the full effort. And I find myself and I find my friends over and over and over again are plagued by this. I'll do better this time. This is really the last one. This time, I'll make every effort. But what happens when there isn't a next time? What happens when you don't have the opportunity to say, this time, I'll make every effort? When I was 21 years old, I had this profound calling in my life. It was, I was graduating from community college, I was at MCC, and I was in this awkward early 20s stage where I was looking for a house, a spouse, a kid, and a dog. And I had none of them. Um, and I, I had spent the summer of 2017 uh, living in, in Southeast Asia. I was in Cambodia. And I had come back, and I, I had spent that time, the first time I went to Cambodia, with a man that I can only describe with reference to Gimli from Lord of the Rings. This man was short, muscular, with a very long beard, and he was incredibly hungry all of the time. <laughs> Needless to say, we made incredibly good friends. And this man was Robert Cady. Uh, he was a missionary in Cambodia that I connected with in Asia during the summer of 2017. And about a year later, I was in this awkward early 20s stage. I was graduating from community college, and he reached out and he suggested that I come back. And rarely have I had as strong of a sense of the will of God in my life as a time when I felt I needed to do something as specific as buy a one-way ticket to Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And it was in one of these seasons that I was actually with Mike. And these are one of those seasons we spent laughing a lot and crying. And in true Rochesterian manner, one of my last days here, we went and got trash plates. <laughs> but when I went back to Cambodia for the second time, it was clear why God had me there. I spent five months with this man, and we sat around a long wooden table, and we talked about everything. We he would zap mosquitoes that were coming around us, and he would stroke his beard while talking about theology, weightlifting, history, politics, our favorite foods, our most spiritual moments, and our greatest failures. He was my father's age, and he spoke to me as a mentor and as a friend. And this was a man who truly loved me, and I, I can say for sure I would not be involved in ministry if it was not for this man. And during those times, he would quote to me 2 Timothy, and he would say this, echoing the words of Paul, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Kyle, he would say, all that I want at the end of my life is to say, I have fought the good fight, I have kept the faith, I have finished the race. Now, if I asked Rob if he knew what it meant to make every effort, he would not hesitate to tell me that he did not know either. 
He spent 20 years as a missionary in Cambodia, raising seven kids, trying to get the gospel to Cambodian-American gangsters and talking with these men about who Jesus was. But he would emphatically say that he didn't know what it meant to make every effort either. About five months after I returned from Cambodia in 2019, Rob died. Um, He hadn't responded to my texts, and I'm sending him messages, and he's not getting back to me, and we're going to catch up. And I'm thinking, some guy can't get back to his friend. And then I found out why. He was fighting for his life in a hospital in Thailand, and it was there that he met our Lord. But when I found out that Rob died, all I could think about was the words that he would say to me when we'd sit at that table, and he would say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Now, he died on the missions field, trying to raise kids, trying to follow Jesus. But he didn't have a second Peter to write, to give encouragement. He didn't have a second Timothy to write. But if he did, he wouldn't give me anything less than the word of God. And I don't have anything more for you than that, than the very words of God. And if Peter can speak to us today and Rob can speak to me, I know that he would say nothing less than this. Continuing on in verse 5, make every effort. Christians, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Spend yourselves and make every effort. Supplement your faith with virtue. Our faith, it can be understood as an affirmation and a confidence in God as the author of our salvation. You ought to be confident that God knows you and that you know him. And this is a faith of equal standing with Peter. And to have faith is not merely to propositionally assert belief in something. It's to pledge your allegiance to Jesus Christ as our Lord, to say that you're going to obey him in all things. And this is the foundation of our godliness. That's why Peter begins with it, saying supplement your faith to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing, who have pledged allegiance with Christ. I want, I want you guys to think about this. And what do you trust, genuinely? What do you pledge allegiance to? What do you have faith in? Do you believe the promises of God about eternal life? John 17, 3, one of my absolute favorite verses, says this. It's Jesus speaking in the high priestly prayers, praying over his disciples, and he defines eternal life in John 17, 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know God, the foundation of our faith. And this is the confidence that Peter wants us to have, not only that we know God, but that God knows us. And it's this intimate, relational knowledge and pledge of obedience to him. And to this foundation, Christians, supplement virtue. Now, the word virtue can be summarized not just as the totality of our Christian character, um, but it's a little bit more specific than that. It can be seen as kind of this courageous excellence. Uh, The word there is going to be what's used by Homer in the Iliad and the Odyssey to describe how as the Greeks, like Achilles, were fighting for valor and glory. They were fighting for virtue. They were fighting for arte. And I think we can understand this. And and some of the commentators on this text have described trying to understand what Peter's encouragement is, the four cardinal virtues, which are are courage or virtue, self-control, wisdom, and then patience and fortitude. So 
I want us to think on virtue for a moment. Peter does not merely mean the summation of our moral character and identity. He's not just saying, supplement your faith by being good. Rather, he's saying, supplement your faith by being courageously, jealously, and boldly morally excellent. Now, the idea of virtue composing the totality of our character is a meaning that's going to be way later attributed to this. So Peter's going to encourage them to have zeal, to fight the good fight, to run the race, to remain faithful, and upon the rock which our faith is in, Christ. So, supplement your faith with virtue, with boldness, with moral excellence. But what is boldness without prudence? What is courage without wisdom? It's a brave soldier who disobeys his commanding officer. Courage without wisdom is a firefighter rushing into a burning building without figuring out if anybody's actually in it. Courage without wisdom is a radical Christian so eager on following Jesus that they neglect to study the very words that he's given us in the Bible. Be bold, Christians. But do so wisely. Take the time to know the word of God that you may have a zeal according to knowledge. That's why Peter says, supplement your virtue with knowledge, but not a distant, ethereal knowledge, a knowledge that's full of sophisticated words and, and complex philosophic content. No. He's saying, supplement your virtue with a knowledge, a, a relational knowledge of Christ and the scriptures. It may contain deep theology. It may contain complex concepts and words like hermeneutics. But it will never be divorced from an intimate relationship and a participation in a relationship with God. Now, this knowledge, while it may be complex, is not beyond us. And I want to read to you 1 Corinthians 2, and, and I've, got a, I've got a bone to pick with this verse. Um, he says this in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 13. He says, Yet among the mature, we do impart, impart wisdom. This is Paul speaking here about the wisdom that we as Christians can have. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Many people I have heard quote that verse, but stop there. How dare you inquire to know the will of God? And at times, there are secret things for the Lord. Absolutely. Amen. God is above us. His ways are not our ways. And yet, there is this encouragement in the scriptures. There is an encouragement that comes from Paul and from Peter, where he says this, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit teaches or searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not a Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this by words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. There is a spiritual wisdom. There is a spiritual knowledge that comes about through an intimate knowing of the word of God. And it is accessible. I think of Moses' words in Deuteronomy where he says that the laws that he is giving them and he's exhorting the people to go and follow and obey as they enter the land of Canaan. 
He's saying these things are not far from you. The secret things belong to the Lord, but these are on your lips. You can have these. Wisdom, however, apart from action, is nothing but a brain on a stick. As a fireman who neglects prudence and thoughtfulness is nothing but a brave fool, the wise man or the wise woman who forgets that wisdom is to be applied is like a mechanic with perpetual car issues. They know how to solve the problem, but they don't do it. They may even be right, and they may even be critical of those who can solve issues at hand, but their lack of effort corrodes the value of their wisdom because it is never applied. They never practice what they preach. Grow in knowledge, Christians. Grow in your wisdom, but never forget to apply and practice it. Practice what you preach. And therefore, this is why Peter says, to knowledge at self-control. So Peter introduces himself in this book as a slave. You guys remember that? As a bondservant of Christ. And this means that he's obedient to his master. He's not only self-controlled, ultimately, then, but he's controlled by the will of Christ. And Christians, we've got to recognize this, that we are not our own. 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Peter says, that we should not be swayed by our passions, our desires, our motivations, the external circumstances that would turn us from pleasing his Lord. There should be no physical pain or hunger that should cause us to break our fasting. There should be no desire that causes us to be unfaithful to our spouses or violate the commandments of Scripture. There should be no motivation for self-aggrandizement and personal gain that should cause us to sacrifice gospel truth for status. This is what Peter says. Add to your wisdom self-control. But if you guys remember, in Galatians 2, Paul describes a scene where Peter himself, he sacrifices the gospel truth of all in Christ as equal for self-gain and status. And it was the very man who gives this reminder to us today, who himself needed to be reminded to have self-control. Self-control, however, is not an end in and of itself. Someone who can physically discipline themselves to run for miles on end without a single break but is unable to submit their heart to the Lord is no better than the sluggard on the couch. Genuinely. Spiritually speaking, one may be healthier, but not spiritually healthy. Paul says, of course, that bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in this life and the life to come. So control yourself, Christian. But don't control yourself, uh, but control yourself insofar as you are able to submit your body to the Lord for service and for worship. And not merely for a season, because he adds to this, continuing on. Self-control at perseverance and steadfastness. If you are to make every effort, really, if you are to make every effort, this is not for a day, this is not for a season, but it is for the entire duration of your life. Add perseverance. Run the race until the end. Do not give up. I do not know many of you. I don't but I know that there is a pressure in your lives. Many of you are dealing with things that I have no idea about. Some of that is temptations to sin, to grumble, to hate, to become resentful, to lash out in anger and bitterness, to gratify the desires of your flesh. There's a pressure to do that. And Peter is encouraging you to remain steadfast. And for some of you, there is a different kind of weight. There's a different kind of pressure, a pressure that, again, I do not know. A pressure of a world that has fallen. 
with disease and hopelessness. But I want to encourage you now, as Peter does, remain steadfast. Hold to the promises of Christ. Cling with every fiber of your spirit to these promises that in Romans say, all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. I don't know what many of you are going through, but I know that our God is faithful. Genuinely, I know that it is, and that's what I wanted to be here to do. I wanted to encourage you about these truths, to have grit, to stand firm, to be unwavering. And I want you to be reminded of this. Hebrews says, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, and we should lay aside every weight every pressure and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. For those of you under pressure, look to Jesus who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Persevere, Christian. Be steadfast under pressure. But do so for the joy that is set before you. And to this perseverance, he says, add godliness. And this word means much more than an imitation of Christ. But this is where we have the summation of our character. Now, if I were to ask you, in the age of online personality tests, what word describes your personality? Extroverted? Introverted? Hilarious? Pessimistic? Optimistic? Cat lover? Country boy? City slicker? Musical? Athletic? Empathic? What word describes you, genuinely? Ask yourself this. Think, think of a poll of your closest family and friends. What word comes to mind? Because for the biblical authors, it was godliness. Their personalities, who they are, the summation of their characters to be godly. It was the principal virtue because it reconciled two things. Intimacy and reverence. The intimacy of someone who knows God as a child knows and loves their father and the reverence of someone who knows that they are created in the presence of a holy God who is their creator. That is godliness. Innate to the man or the woman of God is to be godly, to know the grace that leads to the supplementation of our faith with virtue, our virtue with knowledge, our knowledge with self-control, our self-controlled perseverance. Our perseverance comes the fruit of the identity of godliness. That's who we are. So be godly, Christian. But recognize that your godliness is not purely based on the music of your phone. And it's not just the time that you spend here at church. And it's not the verses that you have memorized, although these are all very good and very, very necessary things. Your godliness stems ultimately from grace, God's grace, by the righteousness of him who has called you. This is the foundation of our godliness. And to this godliness, Peter's going to say this, add brotherly love brotherly affection, and to brotherly affection and love. As many of you know, the city of Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love, and that's because it comes from two words, philia and adelphi. In the context of Second Peter, brotherly affection is that familial-like affection directed to the family of God. Now, I really hope that you know this, that before one can love others beyond the church, you must love the church. You must for all of our faults, all of the church's failures, one cannot seek to love the people of the world if they do not love the church. And this is a kind of holy privilege for the people of God, to take care of our household first, 
and then the world. For as, as uh, Jesus says in John thirteen thirty five, by this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is not the love for the world, first and foremost, that we are known, but it is our love for one another. How do you care for one another in this church? Genuinely. And to this love for the body of Christ, Peter exhorts us one more attribute, the capstone of the entire infrastructure that Peter talks about in this great and grand reminder. He says the capstone, the pinnacle, the point of the pyramid, which all this builds up to is what? Love. Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians, of course, that the greatest of the three theological virtues, faith and hope, the greatest of them is going to be love. The grace of God is going to give us all things pertaining to life and godliness, that we may obey, supplementing our faith with all of these things so that we may love. Supplement our faith with virtue, our virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with perseverance, perseverance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Continuing on in verses 8 and 9, Peter says this, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. These two words should make us tremble. Ineffective and unfruitful. But there's also an excitement that should be associated with this as well. First, it's possible to be unfruitful. It's possible to be, to be ineffective. Now, it may genuinely be that you or I are not completely awash with our faith, right? Maybe we've evangelized a few times. Maybe we've attended our church, raised children in a Christian home, faithfully followed Jesus, and gotten over some big sins. But if we forsake these qualities, and they are not ours and increasing, he says that we'll be ineffective. He warns this church, as I'm warning you, that if we do not continue to grow and in his words increase, we will be ineffective we will be like a blind man, forgetting that we have been cleansed. Yet, he says this, with expectation, with joy. We can read in verse 10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. How many people do you know that can promise you that you will never fall in sin? Never. That is what Peter says here. I want to read that again. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, if we neglect these things, we become unfruitful and ineffective. But, says Peter, if we confirm our calling and election by increasing in these, we'll be faithful. We will never fall away from the faith. He says in verse 11, In this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As we increase... And as we grow in our knowledge of God, we can enter into the eternal kingdom. We can run the race faithfully. It's for this reason that Peter is going to finish this introduction by saying in verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by ray of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter concludes his message in much the same manner that I will. Therefore, with all the weight that precedes this, the grace and the calling and the exhortation, 
I intend always to remind you of these things, to stir you up, though you know them and are established in them. Peter reminds his, his readers, and he reminds us of what we already know. And I, I thought as I was coming here to preach and speak with you all, I want to remind you of what you know, the truths that you've already been established in. And I want to give you the encouragement to make every effort to grow in godliness. Make every effort. Do not forget what Peter has said to you and do not forget what I am saying to you. Grace leads to godliness. Grace, God's grace, leads to godliness. And I'll finish with what Paul describes is the end goal of our godliness. And the weightiness of this verse, I love it so much. It's become one of my favorites. It's going to be in Ephesians 4. It's part of our scripture reading for this day. The aim of our faith is to be called to look like Jesus himself. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. My prayer for you is that you are building one another up in love with the end goal, the telos, or the, the end point, the finishing point, is that we may attain to the fullness of the measure, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Every single one in this room, if you know God, you will look like Jesus you will be measured by the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. And that is what we are building to. That is why we're here. It's why we come to church. It's why I'm up here preaching. It's why Mike disciples your kids and I try to run this program just to pour into some people, to build them up. And that's why we labor here. Because we love and we hope that as we encourage one another, as Peter encourages us to grow in these things, that we will reach that end goal. That is the point of ministry, being in the church, that we all may attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And the glory of this for us as Christians is absolutely profound. And if you do not know Christ, I pray that you would come into the family and the fold of God, that you may partake in this as we become partakers in the divine nature. So keep laboring in love, please. And if you are not, make every effort. You do not know when you won't be able to say that again but we can do this. We can build the body of Christ. So let us pray. Father, we know the call that your word has on us. And we know in so many ways, Father, that we do not make every effort. We do not seek the things of God. But we know that your grace is sufficient to cover that. But it is also sufficient, God, and it is sufficient to enable us to follow you, to obey you, and to walk in all things. I pray that you would help us to supplement our faith with virtue, our virtue with knowledge, our knowledge with self-control, our self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. And God, as we increase in these qualities, keep us from falling, from being unaffected and unfruitful in the ministry. 
I thank you for the opportunity to speak this morning, and I pray for the encouragement of our brothers and sisters here. We thank you in your son Jesus' name. Amen.